Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Caroline Rose. Caroline is a senior analyst and head of the Power Vacuums program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute. Her commentary and work on geopolitics and Middle Eastern affairs have been featured in Foreign Policy, The Independent, Al Hira, Limes Magazine, and the Atlantic Council's Mena Source. Caroline tweets at, at Caroline Rose 8, and her tweets are always well worth a read. Our conversation today focuses on the Middle East and how outside powers are capitalizing on America's diplomatic withdrawal from Mena. Caroline, welcome back to the podcast. So much for having me, Bill. It's great to be back. Now, look, I, I want to look at who's filling the power vacuum. But first of all, can we look at the Biden presidency? How committed is Joe Biden to the Middle East? And do you see any significant shift away from a direction of travel that really begun under President Obama, continued under Donald Trump, uh, to effectively withdraw America from the Middle East? I think that with the Biden administration, it's not necessarily that there is a disinterest in the Middle East. I think there is very much a concern and an interest in in keeping a modicum of Middle Eastern security and stability. But that being said, it's very clear that with with this administration, um, and I think that in the first few months, even more than what was campaigned, uh, this administration is very focused on shifting and pivoting towards the Pacific and to Eastern Europe to uh, essentially meet the challenge posed by China and also the ongoing challenge posed by by Russia. And I think that this administration has very carefully and cautiously conducted itself in the Middle East, um, almost very quietly as well. Uh, You know, of course, you're not seeing any huge bilateral visits or, or huge agreements or deals made with uh, you know, Persian Gulf allies. You're also not seeing any kind of ambitious promises uh, made about, you know, Israeli-Palestinian peace or, you know, withdrawal announcements in Iraq or Syria. Rather, and even when it comes to, to tensions as well, I mean, the recent strikes in, in Syria and Iraq, uh, the administration was very quiet about how they conducted that. And the reason is because they want to maintain a a degree of force presence in the Middle East, but at the same time, concentrate as much as it can on um, eliminating any distractions and, of course, not opening up any new conflicts or new clashes or, or potential tensions in the Middle East as it seeks to focus on China and Russia. Uh, Now, of course, recently, uh, there has been a bit of an obstacle in in the administration's way, um, something that has really thrown a wrench into the strategy, and it is the stalling of the JCPOA nuclear discussions with Iran. And in the last week or so, there has been some chatter uh, between the Department of Defense, between this administration, and with the United States uh, partner Israel uh, in, in trying to come up with a contingency plan and a strategy if the JCPOA fails, if tensions are revived, and if um, potentially essentially revived conflict and armed conflict would, would happen in the Middle East between the United States and, uh, and, and, and Iran. Uh, now, of course, I, I would like to say that this is a contingency plan. I think that some have uh, sensationalized this this news a bit by by um, you know trying to imagine that the administration was was seeking this out as a you know first or second option. However, I think that that does indicate that there is a shift, and that despite all its best efforts to try and pivot away from the Middle East, 
uh, you know, reduce its attention span there. Still, there is a possibility that this administration could still get bogged down with ongoing conflicts and, and issues in the Middle East. Mm, yeah. We, interestingly, within MENA and the wider region, we are seeing differences being patched up. Um, for example, the UAE, a key player, is making overtures to Iran. There's settling of differences with Turkey, diplomatic engagement as opposed to hard power in Sudan, solidly backing Assad in Syria. What's happening here with the UAE? What, what is the strategy of Mohammed bin Zayed, the uh, Abu Dhabi crown prince and de facto ruler? So uh, similarly, I, I think that Iran is playing a huge role in the reconfiguration of alliance systems in the region. And it's it's quite impressive. And I think that part of this also has to do with the very quiet and incremental withdrawal process that the United States is conducting in Iraq and uh, potentially in Syria. I think that the fact that the United States has departed from, from eight bases in Iraq last year, um, there's, of course, always talk within the strategic dialogue context of, of the United States conducting additional personnel reductions in, in Iraq. There was the United States also um, removed a few Patriot missile systems in the Persian Gulf and Saudi Arabia. And uh, so I think that amidst this reality, uh, a lot of U.S. partners, um, also former adversaries, are recognizing that, um, you know, given that the Iranian threat will, will continue to define the security landscape in the region, there is going to be a, a need for a more informal or formal coalition that can manage uh, Iranian power projection. And so I think that that is the game plan that the UAE is undertaking here. I think that it is, of course, also equally uh, an ambitious proje project that the UAE wants to undertake because, you know, I think that the UAE is very much, it sees itself as kind of a de facto leader of, of the region, as you mentioned. And this is a very ambitious project. Um, it's very flashy. It, it, it's gotten a lot of attention. It's posing itself as a very much of a soft power uh, you know, act actor in the region. And so I think because of that, uh, that's why we're starting to see the kind of a few tectonic shifts in, in the region. If you told me, you know, three, four years ago that the UAE would be pursuing this type of initiative with Turkey, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, but I think the fact that the JCPOA discussions are lagging, the United States is taking withdrawal a bit more seriously in the region and also, I think that Turkey is also in a very interesting position where it's tried a bit more of an emboldened foreign policy agenda in the Mediterranean. Uh, some of it stuck, some of it failed. And I also think their economic conditions, their, their, their current uh, currency crisis, that's also incentivizing them to explore uh, normalization opportunities with, with some of its former Gulf adversaries. Yeah, you speak of... of shifting plate tectonic plate shifting and i and what i what i think about the uae is that they do see an opportunity here but also if you look at the jcpoa what was missing the first time around was an engagement really with the middle east players with the saudis with the emiratis and and we're seeing really a replay of that again so the emiratis are saying fine you don't want us engaged directly in these talks we'll we'll reach out to iran and you know realistically they need to do that because if the jcpoa talks fail and it looks more likely than not they will then 
the Emiratis, the Saudis, they have to have some sort of a rapprochement understanding with Iran. Exactly, exactly. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right. They're trying to fill a number of voids here. You know, of course, look to a potential coalition that can help manage Iran, not necessarily confront them, but, but manage some of these threats. But on the, on the flip side, you also want to keep that communication channel open and that back door open. And I think that the Emiratis are really trying to juggle that. Um, whether they will be success, successful, I'm not necessarily sure. But, you know, I, I think that we're seeing a kind of a new era of, of, of self-reliance among some of these Middle Eastern power players, so to speak, in trying to essentially take it upon themselves to reconfigure this alliance system in the wake of uh, an American departure. Mm. And of course, we've got the Abraham Accords and really quite tight relationship now between the Emiratis and the Israelis. Very much so. Very much so. And I think that, you know, this isn't, it's showing that it hasn't necessarily just been uh, economic cooperation and, and investment opportunities. This is very much going to translate into security assistance and security cooperation, which I think that that in many ways is, is also going to serve as um, somewhat of a pillar for for this emerging coalition to, to manage Iranian, um, you know, foreign policy aims and, and aggression in the region. And I think that that very much is, is going to contribute to the kind of the larger picture that we'll see in the Middle Eastern security landscape. Well, look, you mentioned China. Let, let's look at China. I mean, there are some very interesting developments, as, as you've noted in one of your recent tweets with the Kurds, for example, but also with the Emiratis and others. What are the Chinese looking to achieve in the Middle East? So it's some of this is a bit unclear. I think that along, you know, it's not necessarily just myself. I think a lot of other analysts who've been in, who've been studying Chinese efforts in the Middle East, um, it's some lines are blurred. However, the recent retweet that I uh, that I put out there, I think it was from Mustafa Gorbuz. Um, it was about how China was starting to. Uh, essentially get very much involved in the ongoing Turkish-Kurdish dispute, kind of lashing out over criticisms of, of their Uyghur policy. And I think that this was very notable because beforehand, China, and, and this goes for not only in the Middle East, but also its policy in Central Asia, Latin America, Africa, China had a foreign policy and, and, and in some cases security policy strategy of investing, um, providing economic opportunity, but never at the expense of, of getting involved in domestic political affairs. Um, now, I think that this could be a bit more of a defense mechanism, but the fact that China went so far to get involved in this very politicized domestic debate signifies a, a bit of a, a, a change in, in Chinese foreign policy and, and, and security affairs. Uh, we know that China has interest in, in investing in the KRG, um, also, of course, in, in, in some reconstruction projects. Uh, certainly, they have a lot of interest with Iran. There was that recent deal a few months ago um, that promised essentially 25 years of infra infrastructure projects. And of course, uh, you know, trade uh, with with Iranian, um, you know, petroleum exports. That being said, I, I, I think that our, China's looking a bit for a more proactive stance in the Levant as a way to also, of course, seg send a signal to the United States 
that they are looking to get a bit more in, in, involved in the region. But I don't think that they will take on a role that would be equivalent to, let's say, Russia or the United States. I think that they're still looking for cooperation, primarily along, you know, economic and investment opportunities. And, uh, you know, that that's going to be very important for them. But essentially, this is this is a major departure from, you know, former Chinese foreign policy and, and, and security behavior, uh, I think, at least. Um, you know, it, it certainly is something that is a bit more of a defense mechanism for, for China, especially over ongoing allegations um, that have been launched against how it, it has treated uh, its Uyghur pop- population. Um, and so I think that there is that element, certainly. But I think it's going to be worth keeping an eye on China in the Middle East, particularly in how it engages with Iraq as a way to build upon its existing and warming relationship with the Iranians and to see how China will try and trace this influence and trace this you know, economic investment throughout the Middle East. And so that will be very interesting to see if, you know, how far will China go in, uh, you know, its, its involvement in domestic Middle Eastern affairs. I think that they look to the United States as a model and, and to some cases, uh, Russia also as a model um, of what not to do in the Middle East. And I think that certainly one of its key pillars is, is non-interference in domestic and political affairs. But you know, again, this marks a, a, a very significant departure. So it'll be really interesting to see, uh, you know, if China will try and depart from that or whether that this represents a new um, style of foreign policy making in the Middle East. Yeah, as you say, um, particularly the American example is one that they would not want to emulate. But look, let's talk now about Russia, deeply involved, of course, in Syria, uh, also in, in Libya. But what inroads has uh, Vladimir Putin made, especially since 2015 and the intervention that saved uh, Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president? How well has he played his ambitions in the Middle East? I think certainly, uh, you know, of, of course, the Russian decision to, to back the regime of Bashar al-Assad uh, was a successful one in that it, it, it allowed the regime to survive uh, they were able to consolidate territory. Um, now, of course, you know, if there was a political settlement to be made in Syria, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad would would be a quote unquote winner of, of many of these concessions. And and I think that, you know, ultimately the regime is is able to survive. And that was the, one of their main imperatives in, in engaging in Syria in the first place. Um, and despite, of course, all of the countless human rights abuses war crimes and whatnot, you know, still, you know, Russia was able to gamble a bit on this and and come out of it uh, with some wins. That being said, of course, there still is a huge economic cost to its engagement in Syria. There has been some domestic backlash in how long, you know, Russia has essentially, uh, you know, helped the Syrian regime. And at the same time, too, I think that many have looked at the United States' Uh, case in Afghanistan and Iraq as a uh, a reality that that Russia should not emulate, and so I think that there is a bit of domestic resistance within Russia 
over its engagement in Syria. And of course, once uh, you know the Syrian peace process, or at least the political settlement is, is achieved, um, and we start to approach reconstruction efforts. I also think that there there may be a bit of hesitation and uh, you know and, and and caution in defining exactly how Russia will 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 have that staying power in 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 Syria and then also the Mediterranean at large, especially too given their own economic dire straits and uh, you know the fact that there is an ongoing engagement along the Ukrainian Russian border. Um, you know, Belarus is still a very sensitive subject. Uh, Eastern Europe is very much a priority in, in the hierarchy of Russian defense imperatives. And so Syria, I'm, I'm uncertain exactly where that will fall on its priority list. So I think that will very that'll be very interesting to see how Russia approaches Syria, but also, of course, Libya and its Middle Eastern strategy overall, um, you know, once a settlement is uh, essentially concluded in, in over Syria. Yeah, I, yeah, as you say, I'm watching brief on that. Now, now you mentioned Turkey, and, and I'm thinking of uh, President Erdogan, uh, seemingly a rapprochement with Mahmoud bin Zayed, while still strongly supporting Qatar and political Islam. And of course, the political Islam issue, that's the, that's the bugaboo for Mohammed bin Zayed, isn't it? So how well do you think uh, Erdogan can thread the needle on this one? Because as you said, uh, Lira is in free fall and he's facing an election next year. I think that in, in, in some cases, the rapprochement with, with the UAE and with MBZ, um, it, it, it signifies that there are, there are some spaces for cooperation that Turkey now understands it's imperative to, to engage on. So, for example, economic cooperation and security cooperation. I believe just you know a day or two ago when there was news that broke out about a UAE, UAE delegation that was visiting Turkey, there were also, of course, you know, drones and, and cooperation over drone programs. That was that was certainly one of the highest agenda items. And so I think that that signifies that despite existing tensions over political Islam and, of course, the uh, 2017 diplomatic crisis that ensued and very much defined tensions and defined, uh, you know, political relations, I think that security cooperation and economic cooperation, along with, uh, you know, collaboration over combating climate change, um, COVID-19 pandemic assistance, you know, elements like that, uh, I think that is going to now, I think, define this new UAE-Turkish relationship, especially with the state of the Turkish economy. And I think, too, that the UAE, along with other GCC allies, recognize that Turkey would be absolutely essential in any strategy in, in Syria, um, you know, if they want to salvage any kind of leverage at the negotiating in Syria, they have to have a communication channel with Turkey. They're also essential in any strategy to manage uh, Iranian proxies and an Iranian, you know, aggression in, in the Levant and also in Yemen. And so I think that this is really a recognition of those realities, despite the constraints over political Islam and very divergent political, you know, aims, I think that these security and economic realities are starting to really define rapprochement between both of both of the countries. Mm, yeah. And now let's turn to Europe and 
another president facing election, uh, President Macron. I was intrigued to see that he started his golf tour not with Mohammed bin Salman, but with MBZ, uh, which we infer from that. I think certainly this is this is definitely part of an expanding French political and defense campaign in the Middle East and that it is trying to diversify its alliance systems. France has played a very big role in the Mediterranean over the past two, three years. Uh, you know, it, it is engaged very much with the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, not as a member, but as an observer. Uh, it has been a very active participant in this emerging alliance system in the Mediterranean. And the UAE has played a very big role in that as well. I think that the UAE has been um, somewhat of the, the middleman between the Gulf and the Mediterranean, especially with this emerging alliance system. And so I think that that is very telling that Macron decided to visit the UAE rather than Saudi Arabia or any other Gulf country, because the UAE is really serving as that bridge um, with Israel, with Greece, um, with a, a number of other Mediterranean countries that have at one point tried to counter Turkey, um, but are also playing a very big role in, in, in countering Iran now, especially which, with reproachment efforts with Turkey. And so I also think, too, that, you know, as France is looking for a bit more of, of, of a larger and a more influential role in the Middle East, they do see the UAE as, um, you know, a soft power, uh, an active player and a proactive uh, you know, actor in, in, in the Middle East. And so I think that that certainly can speak to why Macron decided to visit uh, MBZ. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about the Biden softly, softly approach. But, you know, I get the sense that America, as it withdraws, these various powers, various countries are looking at the situation, seeing opportunities. And, and whereas previously, America was the, the guarantor that is really changing. And, and again, I, I wonder whether Biden is, is factoring this in. Is this, is this just a kind of let it all go and not think about the consequences? Or is there a policy at play here? I'm, I'm not very confident that the Biden administration has really put together a policy. Um, unfortunately, I, I think that it is very de facto and play by play with some of this. Um, and I think the reason why they have hesitated with putting a policy together is because they don't want to fall into the trap that the Obama administration had when trying to construct a, you know, a Syria policy or country-specific policies and a larger regional policy. Um, because as soon as they start you know, undertaking that, I think that unfortunately there's, there's this fear that they'll fall into greater engagement and they won't stick to the larger um, strategic imperative, which is, of course, to to pivot towards the Asia, Asia Pacific and to, you know, countering Russia and, and Eastern Europe. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we've seen that. Certainly, you know, something I've been working on very lately has been, you know, U.S.-Syria policy. And it's very clear that there is no clear thought out strategy um, in Syria other than some considerations to the timeline of um, Operation Inherent Resolve Forces that are operating in the northeast of the country. Um, other than that, you really can't find much else. And so I think that this administration thus far has been very hesitant not to make any major moves um, or, or calculations in the Middle East 
other than how are we going to pivot? How are we going to withdraw our personnel? How are we going to try and maintain a modicum of stability in the, in the, in the region? Well, of course, trying to prioritize some of our bigger items on our foreign policy agenda. Well, Caroline, finally, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the, the five-year question. Uh, what do you think, five years down the road, the political landscape is going to look like in the Middle East vis-a-vis America and this, this power vacuum, really, this withdrawal? Absolutely. So I think that certainly we will see a, a larger withdrawal of U.S. forces uh, from Iraq and Syria. I think that the uh, the influence of Iranian militias and, and proxy forces in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, um, that that will of course be a, a mainstay of of the security landscape in the region. I think we will see a bit more of an, a formalized coalition between uh, you know the 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 rapprochement efforts that we've we've started to see this past year. That being said, I also think that uh, there's going to be increased volatility politically in a lot of these countries. Um, there's going to be increased protests, conditions, economic conditions, uh, living conditions that are going to be worsened. Uh, and I think that that is certainly going to exacerbate this existing power vacuum. And I also think that uh, you know instability posed by the withdrawal in Afghanistan, of course, Iranian efforts there, uh, existing developments in, in Central Asia, I think there is going to start to be a, a bit of a link between uh, some of the instability in Central and South Asia and instability in the Middle East. And so I think that it'll be very important for us in the next five to 10 years to start envisioning this this uh, this connect and this, this nexus between the Middle East and the Central Asian and South Asian security landscapes especially too, as, as China starts to uh, become more of a power and an influence in, in these regions, I think that's going to be very important for the United States to keep an eye on. And of course, we have an election coming up in 2024, and uh, many people are saying, well, you know, Donald Trump will win it one way or the other. A frightening thought? I'm not necessarily sure, you know, if, if that will happen. You know, certainly... The Biden administration hasn't, uh, you know, had incredible, you know, polling uh, success lately. But that being said, I don't necessarily think that this will translate into a a win for the Trump administration. I think that a lot of Americans are are still very tired of that era of, of American politics and foreign policy. You know, it's very possible that, you know, perhaps the Democrats will not win. Um, and that, you know, a Republican would would uh, essentially win this election. But I really do think that, um, you know, I, I think it is very possible for the Biden administration to win another term, you know, despite some of the, the stumbling blocks that it has experienced in, the, in these past few months. I still think that um, in terms of, you know, its foreign policy and domestic policies, they are drastically more tame than uh, that of the Trump administration. Yeah, and you could argue in in the Middle East that uh, America's presence there was weakened dramatically during the Trump years. Yes, exactly, exactly. And our our credibility and our our legitimacy as well, especially in Europe, I think that we've started to see some of those reverberations um, over the last two to three months. Uh, some of some of the consequences of the Trump, Trump the Trump administration and the distrust uh, that a lot of our former you know partners and, and allies 
uh, have with the United States in, in this, you know, insecurity and political cooperation. I think that, you know, this is going to very much affect us uh, down the line. And we are certainly seeing that play out in the MENA region, too. Caroline, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was New Line Institute's senior analyst, Caroline Rose. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, Arab Digest publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on arabdigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.